And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. You guys ready for a Bible study? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. We'll cover that whole chapter. This is our Certainty in a World of Doubt teaching series. Here this morning, we've got a great uh, teaching in store for us. Luke chapter 20, we'll look at verses 1 through 47. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and so we're kind of racing to the end of the, the Gospel of Luke and racing to the end of this year. We should be finished up by the end of the year. We'll be heading into a brand new study at the beginning of the year. And the title of this weekend's message is, Who's the Boss? And uh, take a look at your sermon notes here. Let's begin part of the intro. Everyone has to live for something or someone. Whether you're an atheist or a Christian or it doesn't matter, you're going to live for something or someone. Whatever that something or someone is becomes the boss or the Lord of your life, whether you want to admit it or not. And so who's the boss of your life? I like what Rebecca Pippard says. She says, whatever controls us is really our God. Whatever controls us is really our God. The one who seeks power is controlled by power. The one who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. That's a, that's a great statement. That's true about everyone, whether you're a Christian or not Christian or whatever's going on in your life. If the boss of your life, if the Lord of your life is something or someone other than Jesus, it will be ultimately unfulfilling, just a matter of time, and terribly unforgiving because the deepest longings of your heart cannot be satisfied by anything or anyone less. That's really the thesis statement of our message this morning as we uh, kind of explore chapter 20 of the Gospel of Luke. Let me give you a little background here. That this is, so these stories we're going to read and this experience in Jesus' life, this is the Wednesday of the Friday, so coming up to Friday of the Good Friday of where Jesus will be hanging on the cross and then the Sunday where he's resurrected from the grave. So that puts this, kind of gives you a little bit of a sense of urgency in the things that he's saying here. So this is the Wednesday before the Good Friday of Jesus' crucifixion. And in this chapter, we have a claim, a promise, and three applications. Jesus claims ultimate authority. He's the boss, is what he's saying. He promises ultimate blessing to those who submit to his ultimate authority. And then he gives us three examples of application of how his authority will impact our lives. He gives us the application of politics. That ought to be fun. We're going to talk a little bit about politics. And then also the afterlife and then protection against fake news. And so how his, uh, how his being the boss of our life, having that ultimate authority in our life protects us against the fake news that's so prevalent in our culture today. So let's pray and we'll uh, walk through these notes and, uh, and take a look at this text. So God, we are delighted to be here this morning. We love you. And as, as our creator and as our redeemer, we belong to you. But in our sinfulness, we, we doubt your goodness and take life into our own hands thinking that we will be happier. What a horrible lie that is. So we pray through the study of your, your word, your inspired and infallible word and the work of your Holy Spirit, help us to see more clearly 
that we are never more alive and never more free than when we are fully submitted to your design for our lives, which is, which is to know you, to serve you, to love you, to obey you, to live for, your, for, to live for you supremely as the Lord and the boss of our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name. And everyone said... I mean, let me give you the full first fill in the blank there on your notes. Jesus claims ultimate authority. That's verses 1 through 8 of our text. Jesus claims ultimate authority. Let me begin reading chapter 20, verse 1. And one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you the authority. He's done, doing some pretty powerful things, but he just finished. Remember last week, he cleaned the, cleansed the temple. He's picking a fight with everybody there in, that, in the temple area. And so they're going, hey, who's the boss of your life? Where do you get all this, this authority? Or who gave you authority to do this? And, and I, love, I love this. This is so classic Jesus. The beauty and the glory of God revealed through Christ and through his answers to them. He answered them. I also will ask you a question. Uh-oh. Now, anytime that Jesus responds to your question with a question, he's going to take you much deeper because you're not thinking deep enough. And so he's going to take them much deeper into what's really going on here. Now, tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say, I love this, they kind of huddle up. They kind of huddle up like a bunch of crooked politicians, you know, and putting their, licking their finger and putting their finger in the air to see which way, way the wind's blowing because they want to be, they're trying to be PC. You guys know what that means. They're trying to be politically correct. These guys are knuckleheads, and that's what Jesus is exposing here. We live in a culture like that. It's all around us. And so these guys all huddle up, and they're going, uh-oh, how, how are we going to respond and they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where he came from and Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I, I, I do these things. I like that. Just like, Okay. Okay, so you guys, and he's challenging them to think much deeper. Now, the religious leaders are, are really asking, to think about this, the religious leaders are asking Jesus, God, God in the flesh. We know that. If you've studied with us through the Gospel of Luke, this is God. Jesus is God. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we see it, we see it in history. It's historical, evidential. It's factual. It's a fact. All the words he said, all the things that he did, this is God. That's the whole purpose of why Luke is writing this. So I mean, this, so this is a little bit ironic. So the religious leaders are asking God, what are your credentials for doing what you do? What gives you the right to boss me around, God? <laughs> you, you hear that? It's, it's kind of, but, but I see people do that all the time. As they shake their fist at God, how dare God do this to my life and how dare him tell me how to live my life and who gave you the credentials, God? <laughs> God! <laughs> So, so that's verse 2, and, and, uh, and so they're asking him this question. His response is brilliant. I just absolutely love it. 
verses three and four. So they had accepted John the Baptist because of their fear of the people, and John the Baptist had validated Jesus, and yet they rejected, they rejected Jesus. And so he's exposing their logic was flawed. Now, what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? You guys, you remember some of those statements? In fact, I don't think I put this on your notes, but Luke chapter three, John chapter one, verses 29 through 34. Also Mark chapter one. I mean, he, he made some pretty bold statements. And we also know through the study here in Luke is that John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, predicted in the Old Testament. And so John the Baptist said things like, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He also said a statement that was, that's just, it's, it's a bit overwhelming unless you really begin to explore it a little bit, but he said, because people came to John the Baptist and said, well, man, who are you? He says, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing. But the one I'm pointing to, oh my goodness, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And you hear what he's saying with that? Don't make much of me, I'm just a signpost. But if you could get to know the one I'm pointing to, he will captivate your heart and you'll never be the same. That's what he's saying. He's just saying. And in fact, he's using a statement there that the Jewish slaves were not required to go, that, to go that low to deal with someone's dirty feet. And yet he's saying, I'm not even worthy to aspire to that level with him. He is out of this world. I've never known anyone quite like him. This is God in the flesh come to redeem us and to reconcile us to the Father. That's, that's what he's saying. And, and so they accepted John, and yet they rejected Jesus. Isn't that interesting? So ironic. Let me ask you this question. Is this a genuine request for facts and truth by these religious leaders? You can yell it out to me. What do you think? No, no. What do you think? You guys think the same thing? Yeah, no, no, no. Why is that? Here's what uh, Jesus said um, well, let me say this first of all, and you've heard me say this before, doubt, doubt will ask honest questions in humility. Unbelief refuses to hear the answers in pride. And oftentimes when people will come up and ask me questions, and, and typically they'll be in one of those two categories. There'll be those that'll be very humble and they have this sincere doubt and they're asking honest questions, and there's others that want to pick a fight with me. That's what they're doing with Jesus. They have pride. They've already made up their mind. Don't confuse us with the facts. We've already made up our mind. Have you ever met anybody like that before? I mean, you can talk until you're blue in the face. They don't want to hear it. You can lay out facts. I've, I've sat down and talked with people from a lot of different false religions and cults and tried to explain to them and give them evidence of the validity and the veracity of the scriptures and of Christ Jesus. And they go, nope, I've already made up my mind. Okay. And this is what Jesus said in John 3, 19. He said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Men prefer darkness over light because their deeds are evil. They, they don't want to know the truth. So my question for you, do you want to know the truth? Are you a seeker of truth? Often beneath intellectual objections to Jesus are personal biases from what we have been taught or prejudices due to past hurts or fear of losing control of our lives. All of these and more can cloud our ability to reason. So we gotta cut through all of that if you're really hungry for truth. So here's another question for you. In fact, you can ask the person sitting next to you if they know the answer to this question. Is truth, is truth relative or absolute? Turn to the person next to you and see if they know the answer to that question. 
Is truth relative or absolute? Maybe you don't even really understand the question. Let me put that in a different way here. As soon as I put this differently, I think you're going to probably be able to answer it better. Is truth a matter of taste and morality, a matter of opinion? That would be relative. Or is truth objective, universal, and constant? Is it absolute? Now, how would you answer that? If you're a Christian, you're going to say it's absolute, but we live in a culture today that thinks that truth is relative. In fact, that we can even vote on whether or not this is true or false or whatever. We have uh, some of our elections, we're, we're basing it on, on that, and so we're kind of changing what is true. Let me ask you this question. Is, is our origin, where we came from, our purpose, why we're here, and our destiny, where we are going, is that relative or absolute? It's absolute. How do, we, how do we know that it's absolute as Christians? By the way, you can't call something straight or crooked unless you have a straight edge somewhere. And so my question would be, what is your straight edge? What is the basis of, of what you believe? What's the credibility of your creed? What's the foundation of your faith? So as Christians, that's the question that they're asking. That's why he spins it back on them, and he says, who's John the Baptist? He's giving them history. He's giving them facts. He's giving them evidence. They don't want the evidence. They've already made up their mind. We live in a culture like that today. People don't want to know the truth. And, and so it's, it's really fascinating. So what is your straight edge? How reliable is it? What, what do you base your life on? Now, this is called uh, epistemology, big word. It's a subdivision of philosophy. Epistemology is not the science of what you know, but how you know it is true. Epistemology is the investigation of what, what distinguishes defensible arguments from dogmatic assertions, facts from opinions, so that's epistemology, trying to understand, is this a defensible argument or a dogmatic And That's the question you should be asking yourself. When you watch the news, <laughs> I mean, believe me, there's more opinions out there than there are facts, okay? Would you agree with that? That's crazy. It's getting worse. It's only going to get worse. Everybody wants to have their opinion out there, and you've got to ask the question, even when they say that these are facts, only later on to find out that wasn't factual. And so you've got to be alert. You've got to be aware. You've got to be hungry for the truth. And so, so this idea of this epistemology is the investigation of what distinguishes defensible arguments, facts, from dogmatic assertions, opinions. It is the study of our method of acquiring knowledge. So as Christians, we have a pretty rock-solid foundation. And uh, we know that our origin, where we came from, our purpose, why we are here in our destiny, where we are going, we don't know that by human speculation. It's not relative, but by divine revelation, it's absolute. This is the very first thing we teach in our game of life. I ask the question, well, how do we know there is a God? And, and, and the answer to that is, and this is how you should respond. If I were to come to you and you're a Christian and I said, well, how do you know there is a God? How would you answer that? Well, here's the answer. Here's how you should answer. We know there's a God, not by human speculation, but by divine revelation. He's revealed himself to us because he took the initiative. So how, and so the next question would be, well, how has he revealed himself to us? In fact, I would encourage you to say, if someone asked you that question, how do you, well, how do you know there's a God? Well, he's revealed himself to us. Leave it at that. Let him ask the next question. The next question should be, well, how has he revealed himself to us? Bible makes it very clear. Through creation, Romans 1, conscience, Romans 2, Christ, how about this? He showed up here. 
through Jesus Christ. That's what this whole gospel of Luke is all about. In fact, that's what all four gospels are all about. God showed up here, and, and, and then he wrote it down for us. And this book, the, the Bible, has his fingerprints all over it. It's absolutely amazing. So how do we know there is a God? Because he's revealed himself to us. How has he revealed himself to us? Creation, conscience, Christ, and ultimately through commandments, his, his word. And so here, here's what you need to know, is that when life is out of control and crazy, you don't know which end is up. You ever feel like that sometimes? I mean, we all do. What do you go back to? Go back to God's word. You go back to the reality of, of why you're here. And you know in your heart, based on God's word, that he's working all things for your good and his glory, even when you can't see it. And you can trust him because you can trust his perfect love, infinite wisdom, unlimited power working in your behalf. And you always, you always go back to that and he's revealed himself to us. So my, my big question here is what are you betting your life on? What is the basis of your belief? What is the foundation of your faith? What's the credibility of your creed? What are... Who is the boss of your life? John 14, 6. I don't think I put this on your notes. You can write it down. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The way? Yeah, the way to God. The truth about God. You want to know God? And the very life of God. In fact, he also says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that we may know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is, he's giving us reality. Where can I find fullness of life? Where can I find happiness in life? Happiness is in an intimate relationship with God. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. That's what he's saying to us in John 17, 3. So that's where we come back to. How do I know that? He's revealed himself to me. He has sent his son to reconcile me back to the Father. He's come to redeem me. So I always go back to that. I always go back to that. Yes, intimacy with God. That's what's going to get me through the difficulties of life is knowing him, loving him, walking with him, experiencing him. That's what this whole study has been about, certainty in a world of doubt. Luke 1, 4, that was the basis of this whole series, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so Jesus is... Uh, claiming to be ultimate authority. What does that mean? He's ultimate reality. You want to know what reality is? Reality is relationship with God. It's knowing God. It's walking with God, experiencing God in your life. Life's most satisfying reality. And this is what I love about Christianity. Christianity is both rational, that's what we're looking at right here, and relational. We're about to look at the relational side and how that impacts our lives. Christ not only appeals to our minds as he's, he's getting them to think a little bit deeper, about the foundation of, of their faith and their belief system, these religious leaders. And so Christ not only appeals to our minds, he also fills our hearts. The gospel is head sound and heart satisfying. In fact, okay, before I move on, you gotta get this. You gotta get this. And this is why we teach the way we teach here. We don't do little wimpy messages and stuff like that, okay? We don't do that, you guys know that. We study the Bible, we dive in, we go deep. Why is that? Because if you want to feel deeply, you must think deeply. If you want to feel and experience the gospel deeply, it comes as a result of thinking deeply about the gospel. To the, the level you think about your theology, if you got shallow theology, you're going to have a shallow doxology. Doxology is worship. That's why you got to dive into God's word because I'm telling you, the more you get to know God through his word, wow, you're 
Worship will go through the roof. There's an old quote from A.W. Tozer I was reflecting on yesterday that I was reminded of, and uh, he said a number of years ago, and I remember this, it was very, very stirring for me, he says, our worship, worship rises or falls with our concept of God. If your worship isn't rising this morning, it's because you've got a very small concept of God, and you need to kind of boost that a bit by studying God's Word. The more you get into the theology, so theology, healthy, deep theology leads to healthy, deep doxology, worship which leads to healthy, soul-satisfying, life-liberating psychology. That's healthy. That's so healthy for us. So that's why we teach the way we teach. It's not like a sermonette or anything. We're just kind of like skimming over the surface. No, we're going to dive deep into God's Word because as He gets a hold of us through His Word, it transforms our life. I wrote this down. I was reflecting on it yesterday. And by the way, that's one of the biggest problems in American Christianity today. We don't have a very high view of God. We can find a church out there that's going to make much of us but not make much of God. And that's what's very destructive to our own lives. This is what I wrote down. I was thinking about this. If you have a high view of God, that's what we all desperately need. If you're going through problems right now, you need to have a high view of God. If you're struggling with temptation, the cure is a high view of God. If you have a high view of God, you will be the most relaxed, cheerful, courageous, resilient, humble, honest, fun person to be around. You will. It'll transform you. It'll transform you. When you realize who it is that walks through your day with you, who will never leave you or forsake you, it makes a difference in your life. That's why when they ask, who gave you the authority? Jesus is saying, I'm it. What did John the Baptist say? That's me. And so that's the reality we've got to come back to. Now, we've got to move into the relational side, and it's, it's going to get a bit convicting here. And so uh, verses 9 through 18, Jesus promises ultimate blessing. So Jesus claims ultimate authority. That's our solid foundation we build our lives on. But in that, if I, if I put my faith in him, he promises ultimate blessing. Verses 9 through 18, listen to this. And he began to tell the people this parable, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so, they, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third this one also they wounded and cast out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. You, you kind of, you see something familiar to you here in this story? I mean, you, you ought to kind of see what's going on here. He's talking to the religious leaders here. And he's talking to all of us, and, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the, what's the word there? Cornerstone. Didn't we just sing that song? Yes, the cornerstone, the cornerstone. Who's the cornerstone? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, okay. So there's about four of us knew that here this morning. 
Okay, the rest of you knew that. You guys are just thinking deeply about these things, aren't you? I can tell. I can see. I can see that. I can see the wheels turning. Yep, yep, yep. And the eyes closing. <laughs> Cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So here's what's fascinating. This is absolutely beautiful what Jesus has given us a parable. This parable is really the meta narrative, it's the big picture of the Bible. So let me ask you this question. Who's the owner of the vineyard? Who's the owner of the vineyard? God. Yep, yep, yep. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. Who are the tenants? Who are the tenants? We are. Yeah. But as tenants, what do we typically do? We tend to act like owners. We act like owners. That's what these tenants are doing. So as tenants, we tend to act like owners. That's the essence of sin. Who who gives you the right to tell me how to live my life? Well, like I'm God. And that's what he's saying to us, but we're like, no, you're not. I'm I'm God of my own life. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That's our culture. And so, so God is the owner of the vineyard. We are the tenants who are acting like owners. In the Old Testament, the owner, God, sends messengers, prophets, predicting the coming of the Messiah that they murder. And in the New Testament, the owner, God, sends his son that we murder with our sin, with our sinfulness. So what we've got to do is if we want to really experience uh, this blessed life, this fullness of life in Christ as a result of his ultimate authority. So we talked about the rational side. This is the relational side. We've got to look at what is our relationship, the relationship of the tenants to, first of all, the owner. Look at your notes, to the owner, the boss. This is what we, how we should respond to him. Tend his property by his word and for his profit. That's what the owner wants. That's what God wants of our lives. All that we have has been given by God, God uh, and has been, been given by God to be used for God's glory. That's what he wants with our lives. That's, that means that we are tenants of the vineyard that he's given us. Now, now, how would I know when I've become a owner rather than a tenant? What does that look like in my life? Well, this is what it looks like. We're all tenants acting like owners when we feel superior to those who don't have our talents, our money, our success, when we look down on those, or when we are not generous with what God has given to us. We're acting more like owners than tenants. There is a fierce impulse in the human heart that we want to believe that if we are successful, it's because of our superiority. (laughs) Hey, I mean, of course I'm successful. Look at me. I'm I'm really smart. I went to an Ivy League school. Look at the education. Look at the family I came from. Oh, my goodness, of course. <laughs> and the Bible tells us, what, do you, what makes you different from anyone else? What do, you, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? That's actually found in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. It also tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God to the glory of God. Now listen to this. This is actually from, let me read to you a quote. This is from the New City Catechism. This question one, what is our only hope in life and death? And here's the answer, that we are not our own but belong body and soul both in life and death to God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. Romans 14, seven through eight makes that very clear. This is from John Calvin. Listen to what he says, part of the commentary of this. If we then are not our own but the Lord's, it is clear what error we must flee. 
and whither we must direct all the acts of our life. We are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will, therefore, sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us, therefore, not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us. We are not our own. In so far as we can, let us forget ourselves in all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are God's. Let his wisdom and will therefore rule our actions. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. That's pretty profound. I like that. He owns you. He created you and he's redeemed you. Your life is not your own. You belong to him. Well, that's not being taught much today, is it? I mean, we tend to treat God as a tenant, and we're the owner. I've, I've heard teachings like that. This city is saturated with teachings like that. This country is saturated with teachings that are like that. That's, that's crazy. He's the owner. He calls the shots. My life is his. And by the way, you'll never be more satisfied than when you live your life fully for him. That's the fact. That is a fact. And so that's, that's our relationship to the owner. But check this out. It's going to get even more quiet in here, okay, as we talk about this next thing. What is our relationship to the messengers? In God's patient kindness, he sends repeated messengers to get our attention. To do what? To tell us that we are not owners or the boss. I love 2 Peter 3.9. God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. What are the messengers that God sends into our lives? I believe he sends parents. He sends ministries. He sends friends. He sends family members. Check this out. I think that he also sends messengers that are called providential messengers, tragedy and frustrations and unfulfilled longings. Those are messengers to remind us that we're not, we're not owners, we're tenants, and we need to run to the owner, God. I love what uh, one guy said. He said, here's the human condition. When you finally get everything your little heart desires, your little heart will find something else to desire, okay? How many have found that to be true, okay? Oh, yeah, of course, it doesn't take you long to figure that one out. I mean, if you're, if you're awake to the reality of the human condition, and what is that? That's a messenger to tell you that your heart was meant for God and Him alone, to find your satisfaction in Him. God gives us all of many gifts that are great gifts, but they're gifts to be pointers back to Him, they're gifts from God, pointers to God. What or who are the messengers God is sending into your life that you keep killing? And I've seen people, I've seen people go from relationship to relationship. I've seen people go from church to church. There are people that have left this church because they didn't want to hear what we had to say. And then I'm just thinking, man, I'm pray, I pray, God, I pray that they'll get the message at the next church they go to. And then I've seen people go from church to church to church and eventually they just throw in the town and go, I'm not going to any church anymore. I'm not going to listen to any messenger of what God's speaking to me. 
And, and you can do that with jobs. You can do that with small groups. You can do that with friends. And certainly you need to have healthy friends speaking truth to you. Knowing the life-liberating, soul-satisfying God of the Bible better can't be achieved by yourself. I was, uh, I was meditating on a verse here this last week that I found... Um, it's this one right here. It's Hebrews 2.1. Listen to this. He says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. That's Hebrews 2.1. Drifting is deadly in the Christian life. Drifting is deadly in the Christian life. You will drift spiritually and it will be deadly if you don't have friends or a church home and people that are committed to speaking the truth to you in love. And you've got to be listening to them. Because if you're just shoving them away and pushing them away and using anger to keep them away, you're not going to hear the words that God wants to speak to you and you desperately need to hear. This parable is showing us that. God sent messenger after messenger after messenger and they kept killing the messengers. He was trying to get their attention. See, here's what happens over time. And you can do that sitting right here, week in and week out. With increased exposure to God's word plus decreased response, you keep pushing God back and not responding to him, over time, your heart will be hard. And you'll get to the place where you can't even hear God. It's dangerous. You're going to drift. That's what he's saying. It's a warning. It's our relationship to the messengers. Do you have people in your life that speak truth to you to get you back on track? You know, one of, one of my messengers is my wife, uh, and, uh, and I love that, but it took me a long time to love that, okay? It took me a couple decades to love that, and she would speak in behalf of God many times, and I didn't want to hear it, and it just took me a really long time to get that, and now I, I'm, I'm, I love when she speaks the truth to me, and I desperately need that. And, and you need people in your life. I have got more than just her in my life that speak the truth to me. I've got very close friends and people and leaders of this church. Our, or, our eldership is set up in such a way. These guys, they speak truth to me. And I speak truth to them. And that's healthy. And I love it. And so what, what about our relationship to the son? Here it is, the son. What should be the tenant's relationship to the son? If Jesus is your boss, the cornerstone, he will forgive you totally, fulfill you completely, fortify your life eternally. I love what Peter says about this cornerstone. He gives us a little bit more commentary on this idea of the cornerstone. How many have ever done a study on this idea of cornerstone? You guys know what we're talking about when we say cornerstone? Show of hands, show of hands. Okay, there's, there's a lot of you that know that. But listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
Whoever believes in him, he will forgive you totally, fulfill you completely, fortify your life eternally. You will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. He forgives us, yes, because he was rejected by men. He hung on the cross for you and I. He fulfills us, yes, because he's precious, he's valuable, he's the son of God. He fortifies us, yes, because he's the cornerstone. He gives straightness and stability to the building and to our lives. The cornerstone was the first stone laid and its dimensions had to be perfect for it provided the plumb lines for the rest of the foundation and the entire building. If it wasn't cut into a perfect rectangle, the walls would lean and cause an eventual collapse. My wife, when she went to Uganda here, uh, a number of years ago with our daughter, and they were building uh, homes that were part of this orphanage. And they'd bring a mom in and bring in these orphan kids into these homes. But these guys, as they were building the home and helping them build these homes, they were using cornerstones. And these guys were pretty persistent in them as they put the stones in there and the blocks in there that they kept them lined up with the cornerstone. Because they, they said, hey, the building's gonna fall down. It's not gonna be able to endure any storms. If we don't build it according to the, the cornerstone. Now, here's what you need to know. Everyone has a cornerstone. Everyone has a God. Everyone has a Lord of their life. But everyone has a cornerstone. It's what gives your life meaning, shape, and definition. Anything else will cause your, anything else will cause your life to, to eventually collapse. If you, if you don't have Christ as your cornerstone, Anything else will cause your life to collapse. If you live for your career and you don't do well, it will punish you all of your life and you'll feel like a failure because it's, it's gonna be terribly unforgiving. If you live for your children and they don't turn out the way you had hoped that they had turned out, you're gonna feel like a worthless person. Even if your career goes well or your children turn out the way you want them to turn out, it will still never be enough to fill the deepest longing of your heart. Listen to what uh, Timothy Keller, he adds commentary uh, to this, this new catechism, this first question, what is, the only, what is our only hope in life and death that we are not our own but belong body and soul, both in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to what Timothy Keller says. This is what he's defining, the basic motive. Why, would, why do we want God as the, the Lord of our lives? He says, the basic motive is that God sent his son to save us by grace and to adopt us into his family. So now, because of that, because of that grace in our gratitude, we want to resemble our Father. We want the family resemblance. We want to look like our Savior. We want to please our Father. See, the basic principle then is this, that we are not to live to please ourselves. We're not to live as if we belong to ourselves, and that means several things. It means, first of all, that we are not to determine for ourselves what is right and wrong. We give up the right to determine that, and we rely wholly on God's Word. So, so, what's, so what's your standard for right and wrong? We go to God's word. We live in a culture today, and you can go to churches today where we, we, we've redefined what is right and wrong. Well, the Bible didn't really actually say that, and this is what it said, and we try to spin the scripture, and we try to fit, fit our lifestyle. But he's saying, no, we let God's word stand. He's the one that determines what's right and wrong because he wrote this out of his 
unbelievable wisdom and love for us. So when we do otherwise, we're trampling on his love and wisdom. Here's the second thing. So not only do we let him determine right and wrong, but secondly, we also give up the operating principle that we usually use in in the day-to-day life. We stop putting ourselves first. We always put first what pleases God and what loves our neighbor. Why would why do we want to do that? Because we're so filled up with him. (laughs) Because we find satisfaction in him. That's why. I don't, I don't need to look after myself. I got the God of the galaxies looking after me. He's gonna take care of me. And then the third thing, it also means that we are to have no part of our lives that is immune from self-giving. We're supposed to give ourselves wholly to him, body and soul, and it means we trust God through thick and thin, through the good and the bad times, in life and death. So no matter how bad it gets, no matter what happens in your life, what do you go back to? You go back to him. You go back to his glory. By the way, what is the chief end of man? Why do you exist? Why are you here? The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Can you find satisfaction in him in the darkest and the most difficult days? Absolutely. Sometimes even better. And you can put him on display. And people will infer from your life. When they look at your life, they'll go, oh, my goodness. Jesus is more desirable, more satisfying than all that life can give or death or suffering could ever take away. I can see that in this person's life. That's a wonderful way to live. That's a wonderful way to live. That's what you were created for and to to live for. Now, okay, we got some application, and we've only got four minutes to do this application here. (laughs) But you know me. I don't even look at the clock half the time, okay? Okay. We just keep on going. So here's the application. That's your fill in the blank. Jesus gives practical application, and now we're going to talk about politics. Oh, I was waiting for this. Weren't you? Yeah. We live in a culture today that's put way, way too much emphasis on politics. That's just a fact, okay? And we as Christians sometimes can do the same. Listen to what Jesus says about politics. I'm going to just give you just a hint, and then maybe in the coming weeks, probably in a couple weeks, I forget when it was, but we're going to talk about Jesus' politics kind of look how it plays its way out in our lives. But the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it law? It sounds like they're sucking up a little bit right there, okay? Did you get that? Okay, it's just as I'm thinking, they don't actually believe that. They're just, they're, they're, yeah, okay, whatever. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach right. Oh, I already said that. Verse 22. It is, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness. <laughs> yes, brilliant. And said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able, to, able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Now, now this is, it's a trap. And on one hand, if he says, no, don't pay the tax, he's calling for an armed revolt and, and he will be crushed by the authorities. But if he says, yes, do pay the tax, then, then everybody who has heard him talk about the kingdom of God will know that he has been blowing smoke. Here's what he's saying. 
and let me give you the fill in the blank. He's telling us to have honorable accountability. Honorable accountability should be our relationship to government and politics. Let me lay this out for you. Let me show you this in the text. So 17a, honor authority. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's what he's saying. He says, honor authority. God has placed authority there. Government is God's gift after the fall to put halt on sin. Romans 13, 1 through 7. So we should honor authority. Some of you need to work a little bit harder at that, okay? Because I see a lot of dishonoring going on towards those officials that God has placed in those positions, okay, by his sovereignty. Maybe they're not the best person to be there, but they're there, and we should still honor them. That's what he's saying here. But he's also saying hold authority accountable, Verse 17b, and to God the things that are God. That's what he's saying. God has the ultimate authority. So here's what he's saying. Don't be passive about politics because they play an important role. So pray, vote, support God-honoring laws. Do that. But don't make politics the highest priority because government is not the answer to all of our problems. The gospel is. That's what he's saying. We tend to, and this is how you know you're putting too much emphasis on politics, is that when you tend to demonize, we tend to demonize the opposite group of people we idolize. So if you tend to idolize your beliefs, your party, you're gonna demonize the opposing team. If you're demonizing, that's because you're idolizing. And that's extremely unhealthy. You got unhealthy balance going on in your life. Honorable accountability, but realizing it's ultimately the gospel that transforms people's hearts. We'll get into it a little bit later on. Let's talk about the afterlife, verses 27 through 40. He gives us a great example of if he's the ultimate authority in our life, the difference it makes in our lives. Verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees who denied that there is a resurrection. In other words, they, they believed souls died with bodies. There was no afterlife. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They're talking about Old Testament law for taking care of widows and preserving the deceased brother's family line. That's what they're talking about there in the Old Testament. Now there were seven brothers. This is part of the story. They're presenting this hypothetical problem here. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without, a, without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. This gal's wearing out a lot of husbands, okay? <laughs> She's one tough gal. Don't, don't marry this gal, okay? Because you're going to be dead in a few months, okay? It'll be all over. And so, afterward, the woman also died, and in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. So the Sadducees are presenting this hypothetical situation in an effort to make the afterlife look absurd and Jesus look stupid. Now, if Jesus laughs with them, then he'll be rejected by the conservatives, the Pharisees, and if he comes up with some convoluted response, he'll be laughed at by the Sadducees and also validate their beliefs. But, and either way, he'll be discredited. But this is, once again, here's Jesus, classic Jesus, putting on display the glory of God. And he said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. What is he saying there? 
That's pretty profound what he's saying. Here's what he's saying, I believe, is that the most euphoric moment and the best marriage in the history of the world is nothing compared to the love, closeness, and enjoyment that you and I will have with Christ overflowing to others in heaven. There's not going to be any uh, marriages in heaven. When my wife found that out, she was so delighted. <laughs> that, that hurt me. But it's true. I said, yep, you're right, honey. You're right, but there's going to be something much better than that, and that's the the point that he's making here. By the way, it's interesting. The Bible begins with a wedding, and it ends with a wedding. It begins with the wedding of who? Adam and Eve, and all marriages are a reenactment of the gospel, the ultimate wedding, which is found in in, uh, Revelation. What's the wedding? Yeah, Jesus is the groom, and the church is the bride. The wedding feasts of the Lamb of God just amazing. It's just, it's a beautiful picture. So even the best wedding relationship, even the best marriage relationship is a dim glimpse of what we, what we will experience in heaven with, with Christ for all eternity. And that's the point he's making. But that, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of, a- a- uh, of Jacob. Did you notice this is present tense? He's not speaking past tense? So these guys are still alive. This is what he's saying. All the theologians say, this is pretty profound what Jesus is saying. They are still alive. They're not on earth, but they're in heaven. And now he is not the God of, of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. What he's saying is that you're never more alive than when you are in relationship with God. And then when you take your last breath on earth and you take your first breath in heaven, you're, you're even more alive than you've ever been alive because you're with him for all eternity. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. <laughs> I love it. I sure like Jesus. He's an amazing guy. I just love him. And he's just, he's brilliant. The glory of God on display here. So hope in heaven will give your life today greater passion, purity, and perseverance. I gave you the verses. You can study that on your own. In the salvation of Jesus Christ, the happy ending, the happy ending he promises and that we all long for, listen, it's not a fairy tale. It's gonna actually happen. He promises us a happy ending, and we all long for a happy ending, and it's not a fairy tale. In fact, when life gets a little weary and hard, You need to turn to Revelation 21.4 and be reminded that one of these days when you go to be with him, he will heal all your wounds and answer all of your questions. That's a fact. That's the hope that we have. Now we gotta finish up with this. Almost there, almost there. Beware of fake news. Here we go. Verses 41 through 47. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? This is pretty profound what Jesus is saying. He's just making a declaration once again that he's deity, that he's God. Jesus is appealing to God's word, Psalm 110.1 to give validity to to who he is. David called the Messiah his Lord. The Jews agreed the Messiah would be the son of David. So how could he be David's son and David's Lord at the same time? That's the point that Jesus is making. And the Lord Jesus himself was the answer to that question. You're looking at him. That's what he's saying. I'm God in the flesh. I'm descended from David and I'm, I'm God. I'm here. I'm his Lord. He was descended from David as the son of man, yet he was David's creator. And they were too blind to see. 
Now that's the truth, but now he's going to tell us a little bit about the beware of the scribes. He's going to say, and in the hearing of all of the people, he said to his disciples, beware of fake news, okay? Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast and devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. That's it. Embrace fully the credibility of the good news and it will protect you against the fake news. By the way, there's a lot of churches There's a lot of false beliefs and religions in our culture today that are giving you fake news, but you need to be so familiar with the good news that you can can spot the fake news looming on the horizon. Just boom, you'll go, bop, that's not true. Here's what's true. This is what the Bible says. And so the best offense against the lies you hear is the rehearsal of the truth. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Everyone has to live for something or someone, whatever that something or someone is becomes the boss or the Lord of your life, whether you want to admit it or not. Jesus is the only boss, the only Lord, that if you surrender your life to his authority, he will fulfill you completely. If you fail him, he will forgive you totally. If you build your life on him, he will fortify your life eternally. I think the only most appropriate way to end our service here this morning is let me just read this. This is from the song that we sang, the last song we sang. And by the way, that's, that Cornerstone song is taken from an older song called Solid Rock. You guys knew that. And they've, they've taken out a section of it. I'll read it, but, uh, but it says, the one section that they read in there, it says, Christ alone, Cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love through the storm. He's Lord, Lord of all. I love that, but let me read the old, old version. It goes like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let this be your declaration here this morning. When darkness veils his lovely face, what do you do? What do you do when you can't see him and it doesn't seem like he's working in your life? I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, when the winds are blowing, what do you, what do you have? My anchor holds within the veil. It's intimacy with him. He'll always love you. He's always there. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is what? Sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.